An honorable profession is brought to you by OpenCounter.com. OpenCounter builds tools for local governments to deliver permits and licenses online. Their portals make complex permitting simple, which lowers transaction costs, increases transparency, and empowers economic development. OpenCounter is a vital tool for communities big and small across the nation, including Atlanta, Charlotte, Oakland, Indianapolis, and San Diego. Check out OpenCounter.com to see what they can do for your community. If you like an honorable profession, I encourage you to check out another great podcast that's out to give you hope in an often hopeless world. Dastardly Cleverness in the Service of Good. Each episode, my friend Spencer Critchley talks to people who are making tremendous positive impacts on our world. The conversations are funny, engaging, and hopeful. Listen to Dastardly Cleverness on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Welcome to An Honorable Profession, a podcast giving America hope since 2018. I'm your host, Ryan Coonerty. An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. The New Deal is an organization that identifies rising stars in the Democratic Party at the state and local level. I've been fortunate enough to be a New Dealer for years, first when I was mayor of Santa Cruz, and now as chair of the Santa Cruz County Board of Supervisors. We've been doing this podcast for a year now, and I encourage you to check out some of our previous episodes with great leaders like Mayor Pete, Nevada Attorney General Aaron Ford, and candidate for U.S. Senate in Texas, Amanda Edwards. You can find us at newdealleaders.org or wherever podcasts are found. And if you like what you hear, please tell your friends. We're trying to bring sanity to politics in an insane era. We need all the help we can get. This week, we continue our Senate segments with Massachusetts State Senator Eric Lesser. Eric's been high on my I want to talk to you list for a while. He's a Harvard Law grad who served as a special assistant to David Axelrod during the Obama administration. He later served as a director of strategic planning for the President's Council of Economic Advisors. He returned to his hometown in 2014 and was elected to the state Senate. There he's been an important voice on the future of work, substance abuse treatment, and student debt. He's only 34 and he's already led a remarkable life. We talk about public service, his path, and what the Democrats need to do to be talking about an optimistic future for this country. Enjoy. Eric Lesser, thanks for joining us on An Honorable Profession. I've been looking forward to this conversation for a long time, and I'm looking forward to hearing what you have to say about the future of work, your time in the Obama administration, and what's going on in Massachusetts right now. Thanks for having me, Ryan. Yeah, I'm excited to be here. So uh, first, I want to talk about a little bit about the start with the future. And um, you've been leading an effort uh, on the New Deal to really think about the future of work and what state and local policymakers need to be doing to prepare for the future economy. Can you talk a little bit about what you see and what we all should be thinking about as we try to prepare for this this future? Yeah, so uh, great question, Ryan, and thank, thank you so much for the interest, and, and really thank you to New Deal for elevating this issue and, and really shedding a light on something that I think we all kind of intuitively get. Um, you know, I was born in 1985, and for I think a generation of leaders, we've seen everything in our life change. 
you know, really since the mid-1980s. The way we communicate, the way we socialize, the way we live, the way we travel, and certainly the way we work. Uh, unfortunately, one thing that we haven't seen change all that much is how we conduct our politics or how our policy fits into all of this change. And that's definitely true for our current economy. Uh, we still have really an industrial model uh, work work policy framework that's based off an era where people clocked into a job at 25 and clocked out at 65 and collected you know, a, a good salary and health care and pension and, and all, of, all of the other securities that a certain generation of Americans took for granted you know, had that all the way through. Uh, but we do know that the world has changed, and that's not the way the economy is working for most people now. And so what we're trying to really think through in this future of work policy group, which I've had the honor of, of co-leading with Amanda Edwards, from uh, who's a city councilor in Houston, who's actually now running for Senate in Texas, is to really think through five years from now, 10 years from now, 15 years from now, how are we going to reimagine uh, the policies we have around work. How are we going to update our social safety net? How are we going to make benefits more portable? Because younger people, our generation, are going to change careers as many times as our parents change jobs. So we really need to be thoughtful about how we're going to adapt our policies and think about around the corner how we're going to update our training and our safety net you know, to take into account that new reality. And... I, the work's been really substantive and really thoughtful. How have you balanced the sort of, you know, typical concern and fear of change with the need to change? Um, it means the government's going to have to be more flexible, but there's a lot of uh, entrenched interests that, that don't like, you know, don't like change or that flexibility. Well, so first off, the change in, is inevitable. Uh, technology is is innovating. Uh, these innovations are coming. Uh, whether we like it or not, the way people work, how people work, the way the economy functions is fundamentally different than it was even 10 or 12 years ago and will continue to change. So the question is, is how we make sure that our political process catches up to that change. And quite frankly, if we don't, we need to make sure we're articulating what the stakes are for people. So, you know, we we already understand that middle class people are being squeezed, that the buying power of the average American family is lower than it's ever been. The cost of everything that is really the most important in life, health care, education, housing, is going up and up and up. And so we really need to be thoughtful about what the solutions to those challenges are. Uh, and so we've really, what we've tried to do with this work working group is not just make it a debating society. We're trying to give young leaders in state capitals and in city council and city hall chambers around the country an actual roadmap for how to make the change happen. So, for example, one of the proposals we put forward is for lifelong learning accounts, uh, because what we found is, is that you have all of these employers, especially in, spe in specialty niches like advanced manufacturing, that are desperate for workers. And we know that those positions pay well, uh, but our training programs are not catching up to where the jobs are. And so there's a huge gap. And I can tell you as, a, as someone who represents an industrial area in western Massachusetts, one of the biggest frustrations I have is every day I meet with employers who tell me, 
you know, that they can't find workers. And in the very same day, I'll meet with a constituent who is out of work and can't find a job. You know, really only government and really only new public policies uh, can solve that gap. So we've proposed things, for example, like lifelong learning accounts. Uh, we've proposed a, a portable uh, a, uh, a portable benefits pilot so that people can um, have their health insurance and their workman's compensation and their other benefits carry with them from employer to employer. Uh, we've experimented, for example, with safety net products for the gig economy. So an Uber driver or a Lyft driver or an Airbnb host can still have really good high-quality health insurance, can still have you know good uh, work um, workman's compensation policies, can still have paid family medical leave. Uh, and so that's really what this is all about. It's about giving leaders in, in communities across the country a real blueprint for how they can tackle these questions. And I think, uh, yeah, I mean, I think people may have assumed that you, in, you were representing Boston and Cambridge, but you're representing Western Mass, uh, where you're f- focusing on both blue collar and white collar. Can you talk a little bit about how do you talk to people in your community about this future in, in regardless of their industry, and do they trust government to come up with the solution? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. I, I think Massachusetts, in a way, is actually a very interesting case study because our state both has been on the receiving end of these changes and has also been a, a great beneficiary, quite frankly, of these changes. Certainly the Boston, Cambridge area, the communities around MIT and around Harvard have been huge beneficiaries of this shift in the economy to innovation and, um, and, uh, and high-tech oriented work. But I think something people don't always remember or appreciate about Massachusetts is we are also an industrial state. The Industrial Revolution literally started in the Lowell textile mills and in, and in the New Bedford textile mills and in the Holyoke paper mills you know, of Massachusetts and, and of the Northeast. So we have a very proud manufacturing and industrial heritage here. And what we've seen is, is you know, the economy changed. And as the economy shifted from one that was really reliant on making things to one that was more reliant on these high-tech fields like computer programming and, and information technology and, and healthcare, uh, you saw certain, er- certain regions of Massachusetts become huge beneficiaries and other regions see a lot of jobs and a lot of opportunity and a lot of people leave. And I, I represent one of those communities that used to be a major industrial center. We were the head of uh, Westinghouse. We were the head of Uniroyal Tires. We were the head of Chapman Valve. We were the head of Indian Motorcycles. All gone, all left in the 70s, 80s, 90s. Those jobs left and have not been replaced at the rate that they need to. So I represent a lot of families who the mother or father might have worked at Uniroyal or Chapman Valve. Uh, the father uh, had to work at Home Depot, and now the, the son or daughter can't even work at Home Depot because Amazon has put you know that store out of business. And so there's a lot of frustration. There's a lot of anger, uh, and it, it's legitimate for people to be frustrated and angry, and I certainly feel that every day. But the obligation we have, I think, as younger leaders is to chart a course for what the future is going to bring. And so what I try to do every day is really just talk about what the opportunity is. 
the opportunity we have in, in Western Mass in particular is to be the center of a rebirth of manufacturing, especially around advanced manufacturing. So we've done a lot of work to promote and to bring in new companies that are making medical devices, that are making the components of solar panels, that are making the elements that go into advanced batteries and power storage systems, and to get our training programs nimble enough and flexible enough so that we have a pool of of, uh, of talent here ready to ready to um, get to work on all of those innovations. That makes a lot of sense. Um, and it's, are you seeing successes either with these some of these policies for portable benefits and flexible programs, uh, or with some of these job training programs? Are we? Uh, is the future? Are you feeling good about the future <laughs> and how we're going to respond? Uh, I think we have a really great test test case to, to show to show people. I'll give you one example. When I first got elected in 2015, the Lower Pioneer Valley Education Collaborative is a, a voc-ed program that a group of six or seven uh, smaller towns in western Massachusetts all share this facility for their voc-ed. The kids do their, you know, their math, their English, their science, academic classes in the morning, and then after lunch they get on a, a bus and they get brought to this facility where they can do, they have a, you know, a horticultural program, they have a cosmetic cosmetics program, they have a uh, elect- electrical program, they have a mechanics program. One program they did not have is advanced manufacturing. So this would be precision machining. This is operating the machines that can cut a piece of aluminum to, you know, a hundredth of a millimeter to insert into a component of a wind turbine or of a solar panel of a, or of a heart pacemaker. I mean, really just incredible future-oriented stuff. So the superintendent brought me to a big open room, and he said to me, he said, we would love to have this program uh, because every day companies are telling us that they need people with this skill set. So we put a plan together to get them the money to buy the machinery and to pay the staff to retrofit this program out. And I'll tell you, one of the most fulfilling things I've done in my time in office was to be at the graduation ceremony of the first class and actually, you know, meet the students uh, who are going to have an incredible future in front of them because of these training programs. You know, the starting salary in a lot of these fields for an 18-year-old, a 17-year-old right out of high school is $25, $30 an hour. And very importantly, they can build on that very quickly if they get into an apprenticeship program, they get further skills training, and eventually they can even go out and open their own shops and become their own entrepreneurs and their own business owners. So um, this is what we need to be focused on. I think as a party, this, these are the stories we need to tell of upward mobility, of opportunity, and of investing in and, and building the future. Uh, we don't have to accept the narrative that there's going to be three or four boom towns in 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 our country, you know, focused on high tech and on venture capital, and everywhere else is doomed. I don't accept that narrative at all. We can reinvest in a in a in a new future of advanced manufacturing of robotics, and we can really put our communities front and center in that transformation. So this is one of the reasons I've been really looking forward to talking to you is because of those stories and the, and the real tangible efforts you've been engaging in in Western Mass. But you've worked in national politics, uh, working for the Obama administration before you returned to, to state politics. What is going on with the Democratic Party and our seeming inability to tell these stories, uh, to have either both an optimistic view 
uh, of the future of work and to tell the success stories of that it's not just a few coastal cities that are succeeding in this economy, but but we can make it work. Like, what's what's going on with the party as a whole? Do you think? Yeah, well, I mean, some of this is it's hard when a party is out of power and when a party doesn't have the presidency to to sort of discipline the 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 sort of political conversation, so to speak, around a common set of ideas. I mean, we were lucky when we had President Obama because he was getting up every day as the president and charting the course for what we wanted our country doing and and as a party what we wanted to be focusing on and, and emphasizing. And so we don't have that 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 leadership discipline right now. And that's okay, because uh, I think we're in a period of, of reformation, so to speak, and of really finding out who that next generation of leaders will be. Uh, but, you know, what I, what I will say is, um, you know, we're not talking about the future enough. Uh, that, that is a piece of feedback I give everyone who asks, and all the candidates. You know, it doesn't matter what you're running for. If you're running for President of the United States or if you're running for dog catcher, elections are about the future and they're about the vision you have for the community that you are seeking to represent and very importantly how you will be including that community in that vision and so uh, I, I think we need to have candidates that are more future oriented I think we we have a lot of great candidates in the presidential campaign who are doing this uh, but I think my, my general feedback to really everyone when they are thinking about running for office is is your vision focused on the future and is your vision and what you're talking about really relevant to what people are waking up every day and worried about. An exercise I do with um, you know friends and colleagues and, and people who are planning to run for office is I say you know do an exercise where you go to just a common area in your district or your community or in your state. You know you know if is it in front of a coffee shop? Is it in front of the town square? Is it next to the subway stop or, or whatever? And just just start stopping and asking people what's on their mind and what they need help with. And what you're going to hear is, is it's the big things. It's, am I going to be able to save enough for retirement? How am I going to make sure my kids have a higher quality of life than I have? How am I going to pay the bills that are mounting, the credit card bills, the rent, everything else? You know, how am I going to afford my health insurance? Those are the questions that people are asking every day, and those are the things that we need to be disciplined about focusing on. Uh, the, 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 the Twitter fight of the hour or of the minute might be cathartic, but it is ultimately not how elections are won, and it's not good for the country. What, what the country needs right now is people who are going to roll up their sleeves and, and do the work of making change in their local communities. And I think that's a good segue into my next question, which is about your decision to roll up your sleeves. You come out of Harvard Law School. You've worked for uh, the president as a, in, the, in the West Wing. Um, many of your colleagues, or former colleagues, are heading off to, to start podcasts and do work for big companies. You chose to move back to your hometown and to run for a state office um, and, and stand on those street corners and talk to people. Can you talk to me about why and how you made that decision? And um, yeah, you well, know, there's what, nothing wrong with starting podcasts. No, no, no. There's <laughs> nothing wrong. People are doing great stuff. But yes, absolutely. But like, yeah. How did you? How did you? What drew you to the position you have now? Which is um, obviously you had the whole world open to you. What drew you back back to Western Mass to run for a state office? Yeah. 
Well, it's a few things. Really, for me, my my defining experience really in politics, what got me motivated to be involved in politics at all, uh, when I was 16 years old in the town I live in in Longville, Massachusetts, which is in Western Mass., I remember the principal called us all in for an assembly one day because there had been a round of budget cuts that were made in Boston. And the principal announced that 40 teachers in our school district were going to be laid off because of budget cuts. And I remember as a 16-year-old just feeling incredibly angry that a group of 14, 15, 16, and 17-year-olds were being asked to pay the price for bad decisions that had been made somewhere else. Uh, and so we got angry and we, we organized. We we organized the Proposition 2.5 override. We knocked on every single door in town uh, asking for, uh, you know, to plug the gap in that teacher funding. And I remember actually the first vote failed uh, because it was a tough thing to ask. We were, we were asking the community to raise their own taxes uh, in order to plug the gap. Uh, but then something very important happened. Uh, we, we put the measure right back up on the ballot because we sensed that the community was changing its opinion after the pink slips were sent out. And the consequences got very real. Uh, and so we, we went right back out. We actually put a compromise measure up that was about two-thirds of what we had been asking for. And we knocked on every single door again. And the second vote passed. And I remember the teachers literally tearing up the pink slips uh, after that second vote passed. And so I felt lucky as a 16-year-old that I was able to see through my own work and with my own eyes, that despite the frustrations and messiness of the political process, it still remains one of the most important ways to make a difference. Uh, and so I kind of caught the bug and got involved in college and, and got involved with President Obama's campaigns. And part of what attracted me to President Obama and then Senator Obama at the time when I was working for him is, is that that was what his campaign was really all about. He had been a former legislator. He had been a community organizer. He was about ground up grassroots up mobilization and something that, uh, that that Senator Obama and then President Obama really always taught his young staff was that change never comes from Washington change comes to Washington and so I, I felt very strongly that the way to make change was to do the work in your local community and to build from the grassroots up and so I was, uh, I was a 3L in law school. I had, you know, a, a pretty cushy life in front of me. Uh, you know, I could have gone to a law firm or, or done, a, done a whole host of things, um, but uh, decided to kind of throw caution to the wind and, and jump in and run for office. I ran in a five-way race. I won by 197 votes. Uh, so whenever anybody says that they think their vote doesn't count, I take that personally because <laughs> yeah. it was a pretty small margin. So, um, you know, so what I would really just kind of impress on people is especially at a moment right now, this perilous moment that we're in, uh, where people are really searching for what, what's our place, how do we how do we fight back, how do we how do we build a future for ourselves and our kids that we can all believe in? My challenge to people would be to think locally, to go back to your community where you grew up, to your neighborhood, to your to your town, to your city, and pick up a clipboard and run for office. I think what you're going to find is that people will be very receptive to your point of view and are going to be hearing you out because I think that there really is a consensus in this country that the ways of the past are not working and it's time for a, a new set of ideas and a new set of people. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I think 
I look at, you know, we have a few people really focused on running for president right now or a few seats in Congress, but you have tens of thousands of school board members and city council members, and collectively they control trillions of dollars uh, and the power to make law in a community, uh, and we need people. Like there's, there's a shortage. Uh, so uh, it is about picking up, you know, uh, going out, connecting with your community. Couldn't agree more. And exactly. And if, and if you look at, um, you know, I, I do think a, a critique of the Democratic Party, which is a fair one in recent history, is that we got a little bit too focused on the shiny object of national politics. And Obviously, the presidency is incredibly important. I, I worked for a president. I, I saw how vital and how monumental and consequential every decision a president makes is every day. So I think it goes without saying that we, we have to focus on on the presidency and on getting a Democrat elected in, um, in, in the new year. But if you go and you look at Quite frankly, every issue, except for maybe foreign policy, but every other issue, it really is state and local level government where the vast majority of the policy making happens. If you care about education, well, you could probably get a lot more done from your local school committee or school board than from a national political office. If you care about criminal justice reform, local sheriffs, local district attorneys, the vast majority of, of the inmates and, and people in our criminal justice justice system are involved in state and local level county courthouses, district attorneys, county jails. If you care about health care, you know, the, the majority of our health care in this country is delivered by local providers in local communities and Medicaid is administered through states. If you if you look at public safety, you know, local police, local fire, even the environment, our pr protection of our local parks, uh, um, land use and zoning, so important to the environment and to how environmental policy works, again, dictated by state and local uh, officials. So, you know, really you go down the list of every issue you could imagine and, and the ability to make an impact on a state level or on a municipal level uh, is really quite, quite important and very, and very consequential. I, yeah, absolutely. That was perfectly said. And then, and then we all copy each other, right? Because uh, so if you come up with a good idea to address criminal justice or the future of work or job training, um, it's not, it's not just going to impact your community because through networks like the new deal, we're going to steal that idea and implement it. In, uh, across the country. And so you're going to end up having this really profound impact uh, and sort of be entrepreneurial um, in policy and, and, it, and it will have a national impact or international. Impact. Yeah, exactly. I mean, our student loan bill of rights has now been filed. I mean, I got that idea from Matt Lesser, no relation, but he was a state rep, now a state senator from Connecticut, right next door to me. He filed that in Connecticut. It's now been filed in, in dozens of state houses across the country. The the portable benefits idea came from Senator Mark Warner from Virginia, U.S. Senator. He presented the idea at the New Deal conference. It's now been filed as state-level legislation again, all across the country, you could really go down the list. Uh, I filed a bill in Massachusetts on an entrepreneur's learner's permit to promote more women uh, and, and underrepresented minorities in the entrepreneurship and tech space. I got that idea from state rep Caroline Simmons, 
who who's in Connecticut and who is a fellow New Deal leader. So you know you 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 can really go down the line again on almost any issue. New Deal is a platform for helping get your ideas into state capitals, into city council chambers, county council chambers across the country. And that is still where the vast majority of policymaking in our country happens. There is um, so much more I want to talk to you about, but I know you have to hit the road. I'd like to hear all about the Obama uh, Passover uh, seders, but we can get that at a, a different point. I think in the last point, min- uh, part two, part two, <laughs> exactly. In the last minute or two, one of the things when I look at your career um, is there was an easy path ahead of you when you were a Harvard student. There was an easy path ahead of you when you were a Harvard law student, yet you chose uh, to take risks, to go work for the Obama administration, to run for this uh, state Senate seat. For a listener out there, imagine a recent college grad, uh, somebody sitting and dissatisfied in a, in a job uh, in a tower somewhere. Make your pitch for sort of risk-taking and public policy when you're young and you may still have debt, you may still have a lot of uh, concern, but, um, but, but you want to go make an impact. Yeah. Well, first there's never a perfect time. Uh, and so, you know, there's always going to be pitfalls at any age, you know, trade-offs that have to be made, very important sacrifices Look, if if you're looking for an easy life, <laughs> an easy career, uh, then then public service is, is not is not going to be the path for you. And and running for office is not for everyone. Um, you know, for some people it's it's not for them, and that's okay. There's a lot of ways to serve beyond uh, running for public office, of course. But that being said, um, you know, if you really want to make a difference, you, you got to get in the arena and share your why. What what makes you tick? What what makes you want to serve and it's it's got to be rooted in your community and it's got to be about your community it can't be about you uh and if you and if you get out there and and really focus on what you want to do uh rather than what you want to be and let your passion and let your ideas uh speak for themselves you're going to see a lot of success and a lot of people are going to be rooting for you and are going to, and are going to want to come into your corner. Uh, but it's, it's got to be grounded in reality and it's got to be about your community. It can't be about you. I think something that you'll see for successful candidates, especially young candidates across the board, uh, is, is if you make it about your community, if you make it about the work, if you make it about the policies, you're going to see a lot of success. And I will say also about it, you know, I, I, I get questions a lot and I actually, I teach a class for young for young people who are thinking about and getting involved in running for office and one of the things i really impress upon younger people is i think people want to help a young person if they feel the young person has has earned it and so if you do the work if you show up if you outwork everyone if you put the ideas out there if you again make it about your community and the and the and the place you want to serve you're going to see a lot of success because I think, frankly, the era of waiting your turn and checking the box is in the past. I don't think people feel that that system served our communities well. I don't think that people feel that that old system got us the change we need. And so I think that we are in a moment where new voices are essential. And I think everyone agrees, regardless of age or where you come from, that we need new ideas and we need new energy on the table. And so if you uh, 
are sincere to who you are and what you believe in, and you get out there and you work hard, even as a young person, I actually think that it could slingshot you and and, and be a, a huge asset. And I think that goes for not just young candidates, but certainly for, for all candidates who have historically not been at the center of the discussion. Because right now is a time where we're looking for new voices, and we're looking for voices who are speaking up with a different perspective. And if you can present that, that to, to someone and to your community and to your voters, you're going to see a lot of success. Well, um, th- let me just say thank you for uh, showing so many of us the way about rolling up your sleeves and doing the work that benefits your community. You're a model for all of us. Uh, well, th- thanks, Ryan. Thanks for having me. All right. I will see you in a couple weeks. I'll see you soon. Yeah, it'll be a good, good, good time. All right. Perfect. Thanks, Eric. Yep, bye-bye. Thanks for listening to An Honorable Profession. Please subscribe to hear more amazing leaders. And keep asking your elected officials to be honorable. Boots Road Group produces podcasts. I'm Ryan Coonerty. And because we keep this honorable, no tax dollars were used in the making of this podcast. <laughs>